Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we continue our reflections into the book of Revelation. I did want to give a shout out this evening to a couple of countries out there that are tuning into this podcast. I've definitely been seeing you on the grid, uh, Brazil, uh, Argentina, and also Canada. It always means so much to me that uh, some of you out there are taking time out of your busy schedules to reflect with me into the richness of the Christian and Catholic faith, especially as it comes to us in the inspired words of the evangelist. Huh? So with that, why don't we jump back into our study and where we left off. We were on the cusp of treating the letter to Philadelphia, so if we can turn our Bibles to chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. That's chapter 3, verses 7 to 13, the letter to Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shall shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word of patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial which is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. He who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, now off the top, we should say once again that there's significant historical context here. The city of Philadelphia itself suffered a devastating earthquake in 17 AD. Huh? Uh, several smaller ones rocked the city afterwards, only to be rebuilt by their imperial funds. Now, Jesus offers words of comfort and stability to the citizens of this city that was constantly being shaken by earthquakes. The imagery of a pillar and a lasting temple assures these Christians a home in a city that will never need imperial funds, so to speak, to rebuild the city of the New Jerusalem. Like Smyrna, we can add a large number of anti-Christian Jews lived in Philadelphia who incited persecution of the Christians. This most likely is the background for the reference in uh, verse 9. Once again, that phrase, synagogue of Satan. Uh, true Judaism doesn't persecute Christianity. Okay, now in these series of verses, we have something very important come up. I, 
I said, oh, a couple weeks ago, we're going to talk about the keys of David when it comes back to us in chapter 3. Well, here we are. Jesus is pictured as the one who holds the key of David, which in, again, Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, is referred to as the keys of death and Hades. And once again here, my friends, if you want to understand this passage, you have to get back into the Old Testament, huh? Uh, This key of David is mentioned in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, where Eliakim replaces Shebna as the prime minister of the Davidic kingdom, okay? So Shebna was removed from his office, and King Hezekiah inserts Eliakim. There, the key of the kingdom is a symbol of the authority of the Davidic king given to the prime minister who acts with the authority of the king. As we read in Isaiah 22, verse 22, he shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. Jesus makes further reference to this in referring to himself as the one who opens and no one shall shut, who shuts and no one opens. My dear friends, Jesus holds the key because he is the Davidic king. We should consider here the importance of the covenant made between uh, God and David all the way back to 2 Samuel 7, verses 10 and following, where through the prophet Nathan, we read about this great covenant, a covenant that will last for all eternity. God did not say this is a covenant that will last for 200 years or 300 years or 500 years. No, but for all eternity. And the words there in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, verses 10 and following, we read of God entering into this covenant with David's lineage. And he will build a great church, a great house, a great temple from his lineage. And yes, Solomon comes from this lineage and he builds a great temple, but that is only a prototype that anticipates the great temple that Jesus will build. Why, in the opening verses of his gospel, does Matthew place an emphasis on Jesus being not only the son of Abraham, but also the son of David? The first verse. Now, this might seem strange to you, that a gospel places an emphasis on Christ's lineage. But no, in point of fact, one of the great themes to the gospel of Matthew is what? That Jesus is the son of David. On eight separate occasions, Matthew makes a point to highlight that Jesus is just not Prince of Peace, Lord of Lord and King of Kings, but son of David. The other overarching theme is that he has come to establish the kingdom of God here on earth. Well, how does he do that? But in the light of what the kingdom of David was all about. So Jesus, as the Davidic king, gives his authority to who? Peter, making him the prime minister of his kingdom. Just as Hezekiah makes Eliakim his prime minister overseeing the kingdom of David. By the way, what did that look like if if you lived during the time of King Hezekiah? Well, they would go to the balcony. Eliakim would be called forward. And all of the kingdom would see King Hezekiah take keys, again, as a symbol of his authority, and put them in the pocket of the new prime minister. Incidentally, the queen mother was also present on the balcony. 
So what we have here is Jesus Christ as king handing the keys to Peter that he is to be the new prime minister. Read Matthew 16, verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Peter, therefore, acts with the authority of Jesus, who is the true holder of the keys. Furthermore, since the keys were meant to be passed on, as they are in Isaiah, Jesus intends Peter's authority to be transferred to a successor. This authority has been handed on down through the centuries to Peter's successors, the popes. And again, the word pope just simply means papa. If you were to go back to Isaiah 22 in those verses, we see how the prime minister is to be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Well, in this case, what you have is a new father to the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem. And oh, by the way, this was the understanding of the first Christian teachers. Consider Tertullian, who once stated that Clement was ordained by Peter. Irenaeus, one of the first Christian teachers, traces the authority of the Bishop of Rome of his time. Listen to what he had to say. To this Clement there succeeded Evaristus. Alexander followed Evaristus, then sixth from the apostles, Sixtus was appointed. After him, Telephorus, who was gloriously martyred, then Eginus, after him, Pius, then after him, Anacetus. Sore having succeeded Anacetus, Eleutherius does now, in the twelfth place from the apostles, hold the inheritance of the episcopate. In this order, and by this succession, the ecclesiastical tradition from the apostles and the preaching of the truth have come down to us. And this is most abundant proof that there is one and the same vivifying faith which has been preserved in the church from the apostles until now and handed down in truth. Okay, so there you have St. Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyon, France, talking about the succession of the first uh, popes, fathers to the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem, the church that Jesus Christ came to establish. All right, now what about applying the letter to uh, Philadelphia today? Well, the Philadelphians are warned about those who call themselves Jews but aren't. In other words, the church is to be careful of false teachers. For a Gentile convert, a Jew, having grown up with the Scriptures, would be seen as an authority on them. Nonetheless, Jews who persecute the church have perverted Judaism and therefore may lead Christians astray. In the same way, Christians need to watch out for those who say they teach true doctrines, but don't. I'm reminded of uh, the closing chapters to Paul's letter to the Romans. He talks about this very thing. Be careful of teachers who teach false doctrine. Just as people like the Nicolaitans taught false doctrines to the churches in John's day, so too there are those who pose as teachers today, yet only lead the faithful astray. So how are we to know what the faith really says about various issues? We must remember the keys given to Peter and to his successors, the popes. But some may object. I have been in many conversations where people do object. 
The question would go something like this. Doesn't obeying the church mean giving up our freedom to think for ourselves? Well, I have given many analogies as it relates to freedom and law, and I like the one here that Michael Barber gives. Not any more than learning the laws of aerodynamics constricts airplane designers from coming up with creative ideas about flying. You can't fly if you don't know the laws of aerodynamics. So too, you cannot be truly free unless you seek to know our Lord's teachings transmitted through the church. There are so many analogies to draw from here as it relates to the need to be obedient to law if we are truly going to be free. And I do think it's very important to think about what Michael Barber's saying there and what we have talked about on so many different occasions as it relates to being obedient to a law so as to be free to practice your discipline. Every profession has a rubric that you must follow, right? Now, does that rubric constrain you? No, not at all. It frees you to become whatever it is that you're called to be. If it's a mechanic, if it's a plumber, if it's a carpenter, you have to follow rules and laws. It doesn't constrict you. In point of fact, it frees you to be the best mechanic, plumber, and carpenter out there. And this is what we are made to see. Contrary to public opinion, ignorance is not bliss. God made us so he knows what we are made for. He meets us exactly as we are and walks with us exactly as he is. Jesus has made God's teachings for our lives knowable through the church. And this is why the church is an instrument of truth. We may not like them at first. We may not understand them at first. But we must keep in mind that the church isn't right because she is really old, but because Christ speaks in her through the Spirit. Truth isn't subject to time, right? <laughs> absolute truth is, well, always going to be absolute truth. And oh yeah, by the way, when you try to disprove that truth, you're going to impose an absolute truth by saying you are wrong because then you're establishing that that wrong is, well, absolute. Okay, how about the letter to Laodicea? The letter to Laodicea. So if you turn your Bibles to chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not knowing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may be rich, and white garments to clothe you and keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and chasten, so be zealous and repent. There again is that word, repent, which really is the overarching theme to these seven letters. And we'll make our concluding remarks about that at the end of this last letter, this seventh letter. Okay, what about the historical and, uh, we should also say, geographical significance of Laodicea? As many commentaries 
point out, and certainly Michael Barber does, Laodicea was located between Hierapolis and Colossae. Now, Colossae was situated at the foot of the mountains and received cold, refreshing drinking water. Hierapolis, on the other hand, was the source of hot mineral pools, which were used for healing baths. The water in Laodicea was neither hot nor cold, and it would appear that Christ uses this geographical data, if you will, as an illustration of the spiritual state of the church in Laodicea. Because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Now, like Philadelphia, Laodicea also had been hit by an earthquake in the first century. However, unlike the Philadelphians, they were so rich they refused imperial help and rebuilt on their own. This would explain why Christ warns the church against boasting, huh? I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. The Lord knows that, despite their earthly wealth, they are spiritually bankrupt. Those very strong words, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, Jesus offers up a threefold prescription. And this is something that uh, Michael Barber draws out beautifully. This threefold prescription of gold refined by fire, white garments, and this salve to anoint your eyes. And how might this threefold prescription be applied? Well, gold refined by fire is given to them for their wretched, pitiable, and poor state. White garments are provided to clothe their nakedness. And finally, eye salve is meant to cure their blindness. These cures must be bought from who? Jesus. Huh? In other words, the Laodiceans must admit that they can't buy these kinds of cures on their own. They need Jesus. And once again, you can find some significant Old Testament imagery uh, to this threefold prescription. Uh, the first cure certainly is the most costly. Gold refined by fire is a symbol for what? But purification through suffering. We see this in Job chapter 23, verse 10, Malachi chapter 3, verses 2 to 3, and Zechariah chapter 13, verse 9. But the question that begs to be asked is, does Jesus actually expect these Christians to desire a test of suffering? Yes. Yes. For only through trials will they learn how to love Christ unselfishly. Only in this will they learn life-giving love. So persecution isn't necessarily a sign of God's rejection of his people, but rather a sign of his love for them. How many times did we talk about it in our special topic of mercy? Any time we encounter God's gratuity, his love, his grace, it is mercy. If you were to fast forward a few verses, verse 19, what do we read? <laughs> Those whom I love, I reprove and chasten, so be zealous and repent. Repent that contrition for your sin and at once resolution to change your life. That word that speaks to having a, a new attitude, a new way of thinking, consequently, a new way of living. Now, how about this second prescription, the white garments? Well, the white garments that cover their nakedness 
is another image rooted in the Old Testament. The uncovering of nakedness is often used in connection with sexual sins, especially those committed as part of idol worship. Perhaps here there is a veiled reference to some kind of sexual immorality committed as part of pagan religious rituals, something we have already touched upon. In any event, the white garments that the Laodiceans are to receive from the Lord are the righteous deeds of the saints. And we ought to footnote something here, my dear friends. The righteous deeds of the saints. That's a very important phrase because it really does emphasize the importance of that passage that comes to us from James 2, 17, that faith without works is dead. Now, in regards to this third prescription, the charge of blindness is used in John's gospel to describe those who refuse to acknowledge guilt and repent. So the third prescription then is meant to cure this, and this is the salve. I salve was something the Laodiceans were well acquainted with. In fact, there was a famous medical school that was known for its use of eye salve. However, the eye salve used by the Laodicean doctors was inadequate to cure spiritual blindness. So once again, <laughs> this is something that must be purchased from Jesus, the true physician. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's meeting them where they are at. And I, I want to really emphasize this because 2,000 years later, the same thing is going on. Once we appreciate the historical context of what is going on in the towns of these churches, I really do think we gain an insight in how the Spirit wants to speak to us today. There are many specific things that we go through each and every day in which Jesus wants to speak to us, just as he did to the people in these seven churches 2,000 years ago. Okay, verses uh, 20 to 22. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. He who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Certainly the words of Christ concerning dining with the faithful is undoubtedly a Eucharistic reference. Michael Barber makes note here of a non-Catholic by the name of David Chilton, who makes the following comment on this passage. We must take seriously the biblical doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the sacrament of the Eucharist. We must return to the biblical pattern of worship centered on Jesus Christ, which means the weekly celebration of the Lord's Supper as well as instruction about its true meaning. In Holy Communion, we are genuinely having dinner with Jesus, lifted up into his heavenly presence, and moreover, we are feasting on him. Again, here we see that the Eucharist is the context in which the book of Revelation must be understood. How about its practical application? Well, I want to go to that phrase, because you are neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. I mean, this is harsh language. Jesus is warning against a real and serious problem. Spiritual indifference and complacency. That spirit of complacency 
where our spirit just kind of goes dormant. What a perversion of love this is when we turn to our strange gods. I mean, we can think of it this way. A man who loves a woman doesn't simply say, okay, tell me the things you don't like and and then tell me the things that would cause you to leave me. I need to know what I can get away with. Yet, seemingly, this is exactly how we often treat the Lord. Love never does the bare minimum. It goes all the way. Jesus wants total life-giving love, not token prayers at the end of our night. No, prayer needs to be a part of our every day, all day. This is why Paul says, pray without ceasing. We can pray without ceasing once we understand that prayer is about conversation with God. If all we are offering to God are token words, the Christian spiritual life won't work. In talking about this, we ought to be reminded of the rich young man who came to Jesus asking, what? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus say? Well, he tells him to keep the commandments. You know the commandments. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. The man replies, all these I have observed from my youth. Notice this. The man says he's kept all these commandments from his youth. A feat anyone would be hard-pressed to follow. At this point, we might expect Jesus to say what? No, you haven't. But Jesus does not contradict the man, which tells us something amazing about the rich young man. Yet, Jesus is about to give him one further command. Mark tells us that Jesus, looking upon him, loved him and then said, you lack one thing. Go, sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And this, of course, we know was too much for the man. At this, his face fell and he walked away. Brothers and sisters, what do we give him? Are we drawing closer to him or do our faces fall and we walk away? This is the decision that is before each and every one of us each day. Okay, I'm looking up at the clock and we are out of time. Tomorrow, we will close with a reflection on the seven churches and then we will begin our treatment of chapter four. All right, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.